Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. This is the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, day twenty-nine of the Corona Apocalypse. Still producing this from the bunker. Hope you guys are well. Uh, so we got a really interesting conversation today with Katie Orphan, who has a book about literary tourism in Los Angeles. Uh, which is fascinating. Um, Loved our conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, Before we get into that, though, there's a couple things. Lots of new people showing up to the show. So there's three things you can do for us right now. Uh, Leave a review, particularly at Apple, but any place where you're listening to this that allows you to leave a review. That's how we get found. It's very helpful. You can also go to thebradking.com. Sign up for a newsletter that I send out updating you on things and happenings around the web during this crazy time. Also, you can download a free ebook um, that I wrote as part of my job here at Carnegie Mellon when you sign up. And you can click on the bookshop link along the top of thebradking.com, and you can buy any of the books from any of the authors that have appeared on the show, and it's supporting independent and small bookstores around the country. So... Talking to Katie got me thinking um, about life, particularly because, I know that's a big-ass statement and also sort of weird, but she wrote this book about sort of famous literary places around Los Angeles. And during the course of the conversation, she was talking about this thing called literary tourism that I that I'd never heard that term before. Um, although I believe it to be a thing because the amount of things that I do not know that actually exist far outnumber the things that I actually know that do exist. So she was talking about this, and I was like, well, who fucking travels to places to just go see things that, like, writers did? And then, of course, immediately I was like, oh, well, like you do, (laughs) right? Like, uh, when I was in just out of college in 1995... I had gotten a job at Cincinnati City Beat, which was a weekly newspaper in Cincinnati, one of two at the time. We lived in a time where there were not only two daily papers, but two weekly papers because I'm a 1,000 years old. And uh, my then-fiancé, who lived in New York City, lived in a borough, but I flew out to see her. And when I went, um, it was the first time that I'd ever gone. I've now gone back a million times. And every time I go, there's two places that I go. Always the Strand, right? The best bookstore on the East Coast. Love going there. Spend hours in there. Always have meetings there and meetups. Like tell people, like, I'll be here for four hours. Just come on down. But I went to the White Horse Tavern, which is famous. And there's a plaque on the wall uh, because Dylan Thomas drank himself to death there. <laughs> and when I went to New York, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go drink at the White Horse Tavern because I was, that's what you do, right? Like, 
didn't realize that was part of literary tourism. In that same year, and this is less tourism-y stuff, but th- as Katie and I were having this conversation about like memories and experiences that people have around literary stuff, uh, there is a, I do this series on my blog called Stories I Dine Out On because throughout my career, like I've just had, I, I, wired in places like that, it was just lucky to sort of be in places that I didn't have any business being other than I worked for Wired. But this happened when I was at City Beat. This was the first piece that I ever wrote. And I've told this story a million times. You can go to thebradking.com and read about it. So the very first story that I wrote at City Beat never got published. But there was uh, a guy named, um, I think his name was Ron Whitehead. And he put on this literary event in Louisville called the Insomniacathon, where they had literary and music stuff going, I think it was 48 hours straight, like all night long, hence the name. So I pitched this. I'm like, hey, I want to go down because Jim Carroll was reading from the Basketball Diaries, and I don't know if the movie was out or if the movie was coming out, but I was like, I need to go see Jim Carroll read in Louisville from the Basketball Diaries, and I'm going to write this sort of literary adventure story. So I go down, and I meet Ron, and we talk. And literally while I'm talking to him, he introduces me to um, this guy. And this guy turns out to be Amiri Baraka, right? (laughs) Like, this amazing writer, poet, music guy, like, activist. I'm 22. Like, I had a... It through my like in high school and college, like I read everything Malcolm X wrote. I had all the books. I actually went to the library. There were we had tapes from his um, speeches uh, for the organization of Afro American Unity uh, after he left the nation or was expelled from the nation. However you want to talk about it, uh, and I had made recordings of them. So I actually had these like I could listen to him talk. Like so, I was sort of immersed in in this. Um, because he was somebody that talked about class, and class was really important to me. So I sort of came to race relations adjacently. But then all of a sudden, like, I'm meeting Amiri Baraka, and I kind of knew who he was. Like, as my career went on, and I had mentors and people in life, and, like, his name would come up, I was like, holy shit, like, I met him when I was 22. Um, Dennis Banks was there, as I recall. Um, Dennis Banks started the American Indian Movement, uh, and uh, have some family connection with that with an uncle. Um, But go to see Jim Carroll read, and I'm in this little tiny bar, right? This little, I don't even remember where it was, but it was late at night, and I was supposed to interview him. I'd arranged to interview him after. So I'm sitting in the, in the fr- like, cross-legged front row, like, Jim, like, look at your computer right now or look at your dashboard or, or your steering wheel, whatever you're looking at. I was that close to Jim Carroll as he was reading the Basketball Diaries. Right, and just freaking out. Like, this is, how can this not be the greatest story I've ever written? Like, Amiri Baraka, Dennis Banks, like, down in Louisville with this, like, 48-hour all-night insomniacathon, crazy thing. So, you know, there, whatever, and um, listening to him read. And uh, I can't remember if I had to go to the bathroom or if I was going to get a drink or if I was, if it was over. But as I made my way back through the bar, uh, there's a guy and he's got the long cigarette and a martini glass. And if you know anything about Hunter S. Thompson, you know Louisville is a place for him. And he happened to be in town. Um, and he was there to see Jim Carroll read. So I have every book 
that he's ever written, right? Like, as every sort of 40-something white, you know, aspiring writer who doesn't fit in has, right? Like, I'm not unique in that particular <laughs> thing. Um, but, you know, and, like, bumped into him. Like, I have a recollection of being like, hello, like, I love your work. And he sort of like, I do care. And, and we walked by, and that was it. And I'm thinking, this is going to be the greatest fucking story that I'm ever going to write. Everywhere you look, there's famous people. So, and it's like 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. So I go back to Jim Carroll's hotel room because that's where I'm going to interview him. But it turned out there was a t- like a PBS crew or a documentary crew that was doing a, a, a documentary on like the 70s literary movement with Patti Smith and Jim Carroll and like that sort of thing. So there was like two hours where they're interviewing and I'm just sort of watching. Um, and, and when it was over, he was spent. I never got to interview him. But like I literally sat in his hotel room, this big ass suite and like, watch this interview happen, which is a little bit like Frank Sinatra has a cold. And if you don't know what that is, Google that and you'll find the best worst profile ever written. But I was like, this is great, right? Like this young kid, like all these people who have influenced me or, or who I know about, like are in this place in Kentucky, like in Appalachia, like this is going to be amazing. The problem is I'm also reading a lot of Walter Winchell. I'm not a classically trained writer. If you've read any of my stuff, that, that none of this will surprise you. Lots of ellipses, like Winchell, like very gossip, ellipses, bullshit. And I also have Hunter Thompson in my head, right? Like gonzo fucking bullshit. So I write this story with like gonzo ellipses, right? Uh, to which my editor, John Fox, God love him, and rightly so, I don't have the piece anymore, but I don't even have to have it to know this is the right thing, Right. And he, he uh, I turned it in. I'm really proud. Uh, you know, like, I got the fucking Pulitzer coming. And uh, he's like, yeah, we can't. None of this. We can't run this. And, and not only can we not run it, this is not a salvageable piece. Like, this, is, this does not appear anywhere. So that piece, literally the first piece that I ever turned in with the cast of characters who you literally cannot write a story and not make it interesting, that was the beginning of my career. Um, and so as Katie and I were talking about her book and her life and sort of the ways in which literary things have influenced her, I was just thinking about the ways in which it had both impacted mine, but in, in such a way that I don't even think about it. Like, I don't even think that I do that when I go to places, but that is instinctively where I go. Like, I find where the writers are, where they have been, and sort of post up, and that's what's interesting to me, as if that energy somehow is there and it's a sacred place or whatever. But that's one of my favorite stories. And, and whenever I was working with young writers, I would tell them like, you know, it is actually possible to have the most interesting story and completely mess it up. And so, you know, craft and things of like those things matter. Uh, and, and, and not everything's going to be a home run. Sometimes you're going to strike out, but as it says on the blog, there are stories that I dine out on. Right, like it's a great story now that I've had my career. It would have been terrible if that would have been the only thing that happened in my career, um, but it wasn't. So I'm really looking forward to you uh, hearing my conversation with Katie and for you going to buy her book. But first, here's my conversation with Katie Orphan.
Okay, so we just spent like the rest of the planet, 20 minutes talking about life and the pandemic and what it's like. Um, you're in LA. And so tell me just what's it like? How's, what is it like out there at the moment? It, it is, it is so quiet here. Um, you know, it, I'm so used to traffic. I'm used to all of the images of, you know, the, freeways jam packed with people and or cars rather, but there's, there's no one out there. Um, you know, I, I've been trying to get takeout a few times a week from local restaurants that I would really like to see exist after this. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'll go to pick something up and there might be one other person there to pick up, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing people most places. I mean, aside from like the grocery store or I'll go out walking in the neighborhood and I'll see a few other people, but it's, everybody's really staying in. It's really, it's, I live right by the highway and, Mm. um, normally I have to keep the windows closed because if I open them, I have to turn the TV up to a hundred and then everybody in the apartment complex can hear my TV. (laughs) <laughs> I have the windows open all the time now. There's uh, like five cars. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. so like every dystopian science fiction book I ever read. I yeah. feel like that's where we're living right now. For sure. I woke up today and there was actually fog. I live sort of down in this little hill and it was like mist everywhere. And I was like, ah, oh, shit, this is, we're in some Stephen King thing now. Like <laughs> we've gone from like the stand to whatever, like something bad is at the mist. Like this is, there's now going to be creatures going around. So how long have you lived out in LA? Nobody's from there. Uh, right. Which is funny because I'm like, I, I actually, know a lot of people who are my my publisher is <laughs> a sixth generation angelino which is incredible um but i have been in la for 11 years what brought you out there uh the like bustling city life <laughs> i mean in, in large part <laughs> i um i wanted to be a tv writer and i moved out here with big dreams um, but it was also shortly after the big w- WGA strike and oh, it was no. during a recession <laughs> and it was just, you know, a perfect storm of, uh, <laughs> not a lot of opportunity. Plus, you know, there's so many people who come out here who are like, yeah, I'm going to make it big in the industry. Um, and I ended up, uh, with a book selling job. Uh, which was appropriate because I'd I'd worked at Borders, I'd worked at my local public library. I have English degrees, and I was like, "Oh, okay, no, this is this is my thing." Uh, so, where did you come from? College? Did you come from a hometown? Like, um, no, well, no. Uh, Are you just a wanderer? Uh, gosh, it'll. I guess it'll sound like I am one. Um, no, I. I had been uh just outside of Vegas for like three or four months prior um living with my mom and my grandma uh because I had just finished grad school um about four months before I moved out 
Um, and I went back and actually had my graduation ceremony and then moved to LA like two days later. Gotcha. So let's go back to the beginning then. So where were you born? Um, I'm originally from Reno, Nevada. Okay. Uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, yes, I have. I like uh, that you had to think about that. Do I have them? (laughs) Well, um, I have, so I have a sister, Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, my parents split up when we were older, um, and my mom remarried, uh, when my sister and I were both adults. I mean, my mom remarried after my sister was married, um, and so we have a stepbrother who is a lot younger than us. Um, and so I have a stepbrother, but you know, I've been an adult who's lived on my own the entire time that he's been part of our family. So I have a uh, half sister who I did not meet until, uh, well into my, well into my twenties. Yeah. I'm familiar with that. Although she was older. So that was, I was the surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in Reno, you have a sister. What, uh, what did your mom and dad do before they got divorced? Obviously argued. Uh, you know, actually not, not very, not very often in front of us. That's good. Good for them. uh, No, uh, my, my parents are both civil engineers. Wow. Um, I guess. Yeah. Nevada. Yeah, and they um and uh also very appropriate for a desert state. Um they work or worked um in water. Yeah. So doing water treatment, wastewater treatment. Um and my sister now does the same. Really? Mm-hmm. So you are the weird art person in the family. Oh yeah. So <laughs> was that very clear early on? Like um were you book nerdy? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I mean, I think it was very obvious very early on, but it wasn't until I was about six years old that I realized that there were jobs out there that weren't being an engineer. (laughs) Um, And at that point I was like, Oh, I don't have to be an engineer too. Cool. Here are all the other things I'd like to do. I've been Um, reading about all these other amazing things that I would like to do, please. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I was I was a bookish kid, um, and my parents uh, were really great about reading to me and to my sister. Um, so that has been, I mean, very formative. I I would read with them every night, and um, yeah, I started reading on my own, and brought the Sunday comics into my mom one morning and read them to her. And she asked if my dad had read them with me prior. And I said, no. And that was the moment my mom realized I knew how to read. That was the beginning of all of it. Oh yeah. Uh, so what were you, what, so your sister's an engineer and what were you in high school? Were you like on the school paper and the yearbook staff and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I've nailed this. I, There's a type I, that shows up on this program. <laughs> uh, I love it. Uh, yeah, I started. Um, I started doing yearbook uh, in like sixth grade. Of course you did. Um, of course and, you did. Yeah, um, and then did it like middle school and high school as well. I am a member of the uh, Quill and Scroll, the high school <laughs> honor society for journalism. Really? I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> I mean, who? 
I assume you stay a member in good standing after high school. I don't know. But it still cracks me up that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm that much of a nerd that I was in the uh, journalism and theater honor societies in high school. So so uh, then you come to do you you go to college? I'm Mm -hmm. where do you go and what do you go for? Um, I went to Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. Oh, so you got out of Reno. I did. I did. Um, yeah. I, despite the fact that there is a, a very nice university there, it was also the thing of that's where my parents went. That's where my aunt and uncle went. That's where all my cousins, like my whole family went there and Lots of people I know, you know, if they went to college there, they really just hung out with the same people from high school, and I wanted to get out. So, plus it's green and rains up there. Yeah, it's a different. That's true. It's a different cultural lifestyle. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Spokane is a little more high desert because it's east of the Cascades. Really. But um, still a lot rainier, a lot more overcast than yeah. Reno and far enough north that in the winter, the days were very short. Uh, and what so did you go to study? Quite a change. Mm-hmm. Sorry, say that again. What did you go to study? Um, I uh, double majored in religion and English lit. Wow. So why those two? English lit, we figured out. Sure, sure. Um, well, (laughs) um, when I was younger, um, I thought I was going to be a pastor. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll study religion. Um, and in college I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, so why does one think that, uh, they would be a pastor? Oh God. Religious family. Um, yeah. That's a Not, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a no. I mean, right. It, it, it's, I guess that's um, certainly not religious in the way that I think a lot of people assume when they hear that. Yep. Like, you know, my, like, they were occasional churchgoers. Um, I, you know, got really involved with youth group and... Um, became much more religiously active than my immediate family. But um, I also come from a very long line of Greek Orthodox priests. Um, yeah, my, my great-grandfather was the first one in generations on generations that wasn't. Um, so that was in large part, I'm like, that was the family business. So, so if you're not going to be a civil engineer, I should be a pastor. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was like, well, I'm not doing what my parents did, but I'm doing what like every man in my family did for hundreds of years. So that makes sense. That's interesting. Do you have a cat? Uh, And then I realized, do you have a cat? A dog who yeah, is I can reacting to the construction across the street. Yeah. No, it's just, hilarious because when I talk, mine comes and sits next to me and gets confused that I'm not talking to him and will do what <laughs> yours is doing. 
<laughs> so, like there's somebody, some other entity has joined the podcast. <laughs> so you go to college, uh, you go to Spokane, religion and English literature. You realize mm-hmm. you're not going to do, you're not going to be a pastor, but you keep the double major. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was still, it was still very interesting to me. And I think, um, I mean, if you're going to be a writer, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much about it that has been beneficial just from like an academic and literary standpoint as well. Um, so I, I mean, I'm, I am slightly jumping ahead. Um, I went to grad school and, um, did a master's in 19th century studies, which was an interdisciplinary literature and history program. Mm -hmm. And it was really helpful that I had that sort of religious literacy to be able to discuss a lot of what was happening, um, socially and in the literature of, I mean, of, any era, but especially the 19th century, to be able to spot the biblical allusions, to understand like, oh, this was written in large response to like this particular religious movement at the time, you know, whether it was the Wesleyans or whomever, but to to be able to bring that to my understanding of literature has certainly been beneficial. It's funny. Um, so uh, you, you're familiar with Elizabeth Wurzel? Mm-hmm. So, she, yeah. you know, when she passed away, I had, had some like interactions with her over the years. Um, and when she passed away, I got all her books and started rereading them again. And the one I'm reading right now is um, Bitch. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and it is, I mean, these essays are like 70 pages long, right? There, I think there's six essays in the book and they're like 70 pages each. It's, it is not a beach read. <laughs> she was so... Um, I mean, she had been classically trained in in various religious backgrounds and history and stuff like that. And reading her work is like as she sort of goes back and forth between popular culture and then like, oh, by the way, here's the four religious texts that this, you know, we can trace these themes back to wherever. And every time I read stuff like that, I'm always like, there are two kinds of writers and I am not that one kind. (laughs) Right. Like, like, and I've told folks, like, I always felt like, um, I've had to go back and read a lot of stuff that I didn't because I didn't come up through that stuff. Um, yeah. And, and then there are writers like her and you who have that thing and who can very easily, not easily, it's work to get there, but you have the ability to sort of know what that palette looks like. Whereas I sort of feel like Jackson Pollock, like I'm drunk on the floor, <laughs> just like throwing paint. And I'm like, I hope these threads hook up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we get there. <laughs> so have you did you you found that to be helpful in your writing? Yeah, it's interesting because I it's other aspects of my like academic background that certainly um, came out to play with this book, but um, certainly in my like love of nineteenth century literature um, and in essay writing and things like that. It certainly has helped. There's an essay I've been working on that I just have to summon the, uh, mental (laughs) focus to finish, um, during these times. But it's a, 
it's about a 19th century Peruvian novel about like uh, abuses of the Catholic church toward the indigenous people of Peru at the time. And I'm like, Oh, like this uses all of my favorite things, social problem novels, church history, like indigenous rights, like all of my favorite stuff comes out to play. So, you know, it's, it is nice to be able to to use that in so much. And I'm so sorry that my computer keeps stinging. I literally don't know how to turn that off. <laughs> so sorry. These are all things that are not problems except during the pandemic. <laughs> so you're, you finish grad, are you, when you're in undergraduate, are you like working for the newspaper? Are you writing? Are you doing stuff? Or are you really just like doing your studies? Um. Gosh, yeah, I didn't I didn't do journalism in college. I think I was certainly from like uh my last year of high school when I was uh senior editor, copy editor and I want to say like the business manager. I was in charge of uh ad sales for the yearbook. Anyway, by the time that ended, I was like, yeah, I'm done for a while and I just stayed done through college. Um, Were you writing for yourself? Yeah. And in college, I certainly was. Um, When does the TV thing kick in? When when are you like, oh, okay, this is the kind of, because what you're doing when you go to graduate school, like to being to want to write for TV, those feel like different worlds completely. Yes. Um, Yeah. I'm trying to, trying to sort of, sort through my thought process at the time. Um, so you're by the seat of a pants kind of gal. Uh, often, perhaps <laughs> too often. Um, you know, I just go where the wind takes me. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes um, you're in an empty LA. <laughs> it's true. Um, gosh, I mean, I, I really got interested in, television as a storytelling medium in college. Um, I, I, there weren't a lot of filmmaking classes available, but I took what was available. Um, and so, you know, I would write shorts and film those and learn about all sorts of things. So, but you were I got, doing that, so when I asked if you were writing in college, that's what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also like, I, yeah, I wrote, I wrote probably, like on my own, I wrote a couple features in college. I wrote a novel in college, maybe more than one. So like I was writing for myself. Like I was, you know, I was holed up in my room at night, like getting homework done. And then I was like, and now for fun, I will write 3000 words of a novel. (laughs) But you're hiding things. That's hiding things. Like, yeah, I wrote a little bit. Like if you wrote two features, a novel, and shot short films, like that's more than a little bit in four years. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. It that's is. true. Thank like, you. I yeah. appreciate that perspective. Yeah. For like Thanks. a writer, like for writers, it may be like, well, that what you know, like that's kind of what you should do. But if you tell a normal person that's what you did, they're <laughs> they're gonna go, Well, that's I did not do anything during college. Yeah. And and I should also say my two majors had no classes that overlapped. Oh, of course they didn't. So, um, 
I I ended up doing four and a half years because I studied abroad for a semester. And so there were a few classes that were only offered in the fall that I had missed. Oh, yeah. So I had to come back for another fall semester, which was nice. Like, you know, I I did not regret that one bit. But I did get a letter that summer that said, you have more than enough credits to graduate. Why are you coming back? Really? um, yeah, I think I'm trying to remember how many credits you had to have. It's like 128 or something like that. Yeah. I went into that last semester with 180 credits. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it's funny cause I'm like, I, you know, I think of that time and I'm like, you know, I could have done so much more and I'm like, oh, I guess I did enough. I yeah. guess I did plenty. Yeah. When uh, you start putting it on paper, people are like, oh, you're crazy and have no time management skills. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. Learning things <laughs> about you and, today. Yeah. I'm like, I also like had a social life and played intramural sports and was an RA. Like, I, you know, I kept busy. You did college. Um, I did. I did college. You did all of the college. I did all of the college. So um, you graduate, uh, and you go back home. Um, I did. I did for oh, like uh, seven or eight months, maybe. Um, <laughs> Long enough to realize it was time to move. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, staying in Reno was never really what I wanted to do. Like I. I really, I do love my hometown. I love going back. Um, but it always felt like there weren't a lot of opportunities for what I wanted to do. And this was, of course, like before the democratization of like easy internet access for people. Cause now there are people, you know, making plenty of short films or, features super low budget and able to put them out through all sorts of streaming services. And at the time, like YouTube existed, but like that wasn't a way anybody made a living. And so if you wanted to do certain types of creative work, it felt like I had to go somewhere else. <laughs> um, and yeah, and uh, I, I hadn't, I had known for a very long time, I mean, I think before college that I wanted to go to grad school in the UK um, as an opportunity to like live in England and have a purpose for doing that. And um, so I applied to some grad schools and ended up moving to England that fall. And what year is this? Uh, 2007. Okay. So you go to England and what's the grad, what's the school? Yeah. University of Sheffield. Oh, I love Sheffield. Me too. Yeah, I had a friend that lit. So my writing partner lives in Berlin, and when I was a professor, okay. I would the day school ended, I was like Mark Harmon in summer school. Like I was on a plane to Europe, and I did not come <laughs> back until like the week before school started. And so I would spend time, you know, bumming around Europe. And I had a lot of friends in England, and one of them lived in Sheffield, uh, and so I would go stay with her. Uh. Yeah, I, I beautiful little place. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. It. I still. I still miss it. Like, um, I mean, the UK has changed a lot of. 
immigration laws even prior to Brexit. Um, when I graduated, there was a visa program for graduates of British universities. But that program has since ended. It ended a number of years ago. So it just wasn't really feasible to stay. Yeah. But I like going back. Yeah, it's great. We were, we were, we went to this little cafe, coffee shop. It was, you know, I don't know, a kilometer or so away from our house. We walked up to it and like we're eating like a late breakfast and like 12 guys with banjos walked in and just started playing. And we were like, nobody seemed shocked by this. We were completely <laughs> not expecting that to happen. And like they just played for an hour and then left. And we were like, well, I guess there's roaming packs of banjo players and like, the weirdest i'm like that's the most english thing that's ever happened it's just like we all met in the yard on a walkabout and decided to play the banjos together like okay that is my that is the memory that i have of sheffield <laughs> i love that Random I, acts of banjo yeah i i don't think i've ever seen a pack of banjo players roaming who has but <laughs> right they're there were um, Morris dancers. I don't know if you've ever What's seen that? a Morris dancer. It's like a traditional folk dance in the north. Um, it's like a group of people. It's um, yeah. I mean, it's like a square dancing isn't even a great like. I guess kind of close to that. There's like a lot of skipping mm -hmm. involved in formations, and they wear like a certain costume. Um, and there would be Morris dancers that would dance on the street um, alongside my flat. And so I would every now and then I'd hear I'd hear them outside and I'd go to the window and just watch this group of middle aged men dancing in the middle of the street. And it was the best. That's Yeah, it's England is so like if you're an American and haven't been there and like and not outside of London, like. Cause I didn't know, you know, like I'm a, huh. I didn't know. And my friends, like she took me on a walk, like a walkabout. And like, that was the first time I realized like, Oh, you just hike through people's backyard because nobody owns land in England. Like yeah. you own the house, but they can't stop you. Uh, yep. Public I, I, right of way. Yeah. I was just like, well, God, you'd get shot 400 times in America. If you <laughs> did that, like, this is insane. Like, are you sure? I just kept asking, like, is this safe? It's like, <laughs> Americans are crazy. Um, also, I learned cream tea. Cream tea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah. was nothing but sugar and tea, and it was the best thing ever. Yeah. So yeah. you get your degree uh, mm -hmm. and are forced to leave and come back. You go back to Reno. Um. Yeah. For a few months, um, I finished my dissertation there, um, and. Uh, yeah, after, after my dissertation was in, I went to go stay with my mom and grandma, um, who at that point, um, were living just outside. I mean, it was my grandma's house. It's the house my mom and her siblings lived in when they were kids. But, um, yeah, my mom had started working in Vegas. Um, and so... I went and stayed with them for a few months. Uh, and it was, you know, that delightful time of, God, this was like <laughs> late 2008 uh, um, when there were no jobs yes, to be had. Yes. The, the last <laughs> yeah. time everything cratered. 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was just. And you got it, two English degrees. <laughs> exactly. So practical. Um, you know, I, I regret nothing. But at the same time, in moments such as these, I'm like, well, why didn't I think medicine was a good option? Right. Or why didn't I like, like why being didn't a plumber, I really, like, well, that's a skill. Like, that's yeah. an actual trade. <laughs> yep, yep. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I... And that I was had when you known, bounced to L.A. Yeah, I mean, I L.A. had always been the, like, end destination. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just kind of reached a point where I was like, well, nothing is happening here. Um, I might as well just take the leap. Um, and very fortunately, um, I have a cousin who lives here. I mean, she's, she's my mom's cousin there roughly the same age, um, which I will not disclose because I love them both. Uh, (laughs) but, um, you know, she'd been in LA for a good 20 years, maybe more at that point. Um, and didn't currently have a roommate. I mean, she owns a house here and usually would rent out the second bedroom and didn't have anyone at the moment. And so she was able to give me a place to stay for a few months, um, which at that time, <laughs> and for someone in my position, I'm like, it's the only way I could have made that happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I stayed with my cousin. I applied for hundreds <laughs> of jobs. Um, and what coffee shop yeah. did you go work at? you know i i sat i sat in her living room most of the time because she would be gone at work and i'm like oh i have like i have this this place to myself and i'd walk to the library and um like what were you applying for oh god like all kinds of things mostly stuff in entertainment um but not solely but I, yeah, I applied for so many jobs at studios. I was sending out resumes to production companies for PA gigs. I was um, so literally any, I, anything anybody would give you in the entertainment industry. Yeah, and I mean, I I know I applied for stuff outside of entertainment as well, but that was you know really where I thought I would end up. So that got the bulk of my attention, but, and, uh, hmm? and? Did, you, and did you get any of them? Nope. I mean, I, I had interviews, but nothing that ever led to an actual job offer. And then, um, I saw a posting for, um, someone with bookstore experience and in, in that time between undergrad and grad school, I worked at borders in Reno. Um, and I had worked at my public library, um, in like middle school and into high school. And, uh, so I like whipped up a resume that highlighted those experiences and my English degree and sent it off. And, 
Um, it was the guy who, uh, founded and I mean, still owns the last bookstore and it was before there was a bookstore. Um, so I went to work for him and, uh, his wife at the time. And I'm assuming their- the last bookstore is a thing. It's, it's a big bookstore in LA. Gotcha. That's I'm like, right. My, my regionalism is showing. I'm like, <laughs> in LA, that people know what I'm talking about, but outside of LA, you have a point. Right. It is a, it's a big bookstore in LA. Um, and so, yeah, a few months after, uh, he hired me, we opened the first location, um, and it moved to a bigger location, a year and a half later. And that's what most people who know the bookstore know. They've seen that. So you were um, there at the beginning. Yeah. And I was there for 10 years. Wow. Doing. Doing. Uh, um, I mean, <laughs> everything, literally everything. I'm trying to think if there's anything I didn't do at some point. Um, but I, I managed the store. Gotcha. Now, are you um, writing while you're doing this? Like you um, came to LA to work in TV writing? Yeah. Yeah, I I was. I mean, I'd certainly have um, periods of time where I was less um, creatively productive. Um, a lot of time where I was very... Uh, stressed out by my job. The the owners of the bookstore moved out of state. And so like I already was working a lot outside of my work hours. And then suddenly the only person who could like deal with a computer problem or, you know, do an emergency run to office depot to get receipt paper because nobody had told me we were low on receipt paper. You know, I was that person. And so I got really overwhelmed with the store for a couple years in there. But yeah, I mean, I was still, um, gosh, I was, you know, I had a great writing group. Um, and you know, we'd, we'd meet and we were all, you know, writing spec scripts or writing pilots. Um, or in the case of one of the women, she was working on a novel and, you know, all, all four of us now are like, you know, for those who are writing, uh, prose or fiction, like, uh, there's a published novelist and two nonfiction writers and now a TV writer. Uh, so we, we all managed to make it, which is pretty cool. Um, how did you guys all meet? Yeah. Hmm? How did you meet? Uh, the, the woman who put us all together, um, knew each of us individually and, and brought us together as a group. Um, well, how does that happen? Like she just rando says like, Hey ladies, I'm going to make I mean, you be a writing group. Ba- basically. <laughs> like, Who is this magic person? <laughs> uh, it's my friend, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, and she had known two of the women in New York. I was, I was the only one of us who hadn't 
also lived in New York for years prior to coming to LA. Um, and they'd all known each other or like she had known the two of the two other women there. Um, and she and I had worked together and, um, she just kind of proposed. She was like, would any of you be interested in doing a writing group? And, um, we all said yes. And it was a really nice time to like have creative feedback and accountability people who, you know, wanted you to make time for your work. Um, and so yeah. did you guys like get together like once a month or was this like, how did it work? Yeah, it was, it was generally like, uh, once a month to every, like Ish. to six <laughs> weeks. Yeah, yeah. Like usually somewhere in there. Um, yeah. And I mean, since then, like people have had kids and things like that. So we haven't, we haven't met in a long, like in that, in that way in a long time. I'm like, I still see them, but, um, yeah, schedules and lives change, but, um, that was certainly a really helpful, um, group to have in my life. Um, what came and to make sure it? that they continue like- to do work. Did you start the book? Did you start read me there or were you working on other stuff? No, with, with that group, I was mostly doing, um, I was mostly doing TV writing still. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I was, I was doing more essays, but I wouldn't, I wasn't workshopping those with the group. Like, um, I would do, yeah, I'd bring in spec scripts or pilots to them for their feedback. But um, the essay writing, I was kind of doing just on my own. Uh, I mean, for people, but yeah, I wasn't workshopping that as much. So did anything come out of like out of that group? Did anything come out of the actual group work? Or was that just, did it end up being like, oh, this was a supportive thing. And then once we all sort of had our time to do stuff, everybody worked on different projects and that's where they ended up. It was, it was certainly more supportive. Um, the only one who was working on a project that, you know, actually became a published work, um, was, uh, Andy Tarant. Andy Turan and her book Anya of California um, came out from Penguin, gosh, probably five years ago. And she was working on that during the group and would bring in pieces from it. Um, but yeah, the rest of us, I mean, certainly did work that made us better writers, but not necessarily work that led directly to publication or to a job. Yeah, I've had writing groups over the years. So part of the, I started a literary group in Indianapolis, and we ended up with about 450 people. Wow. Uh, and we did, like, events, and uh, I did, like, a yearly writing retreat, and we do, like, monthly retreat, like, half-day retreats, and we'd have write-ins during the week at coffee shops, and we did a literary magazine and published some books. Um but in terms of, like, the stuff that we produced, like, because there was five of us that ran it, like, nothing mm-hmm. that we did, like, none of our stuff ever got produced in that stuff. Like, the writing groups and things were fun for other people, but for us, it was like, ah, I need to just <laughs> sit in my house and do this. And, like, I'll send it out to my writer friends. Like, 
it's like the New Yorker. Writing groups are like the New Yorker. That shit just keeps showing up and you never read it. And now you got a pile <laughs> of it and you're just like, oh my God, like I can't even look at the New Yorker now. Like there's a corner of my office that's just like stacks of magazines that like I'm going to read. That has been my experience with writing groups. It's like, oh shit, I haven't done anything for 27 days. Now I got to write something and show it to these people. Yeah. That was not your experience with that? Well, you know, it's, I would say, like, I never, like, I never felt like, I don't know, um, like I wasn't being productive or I never felt any guilt about what I was or wasn't producing. I just, I find knowing that other people are going to see what I'm going to do, um, pushes me to get things done in a way that just doing them for myself doesn't really. Yeah. I think at one point I was a lot more self-motivated. It was perfectly happy to just write things that only I wouldn't see. And now I'm like, no, I need to know that somebody else is expecting this. <laughs> that helps me to meet deadlines and get things done. Yeah, or set deadlines. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, like certainly um, that writer's group was really helpful for that. And the other thing that was really helpful, and it's funny, I'm like, I, I don't know if it's, I hope it's easy to see the clear line from this to like everything else I do. But I also, um, was taking a bunch of classes, at upright citizens brigade. Ah. Um, um, and, the, um, and it was sketch writing that I still think is, is the most use useful thing I've done. Like certainly like there were technical things about different types of sketch and game and things like that. But having to show up every week with a new sketch, have the class, like have the class perform, you know, read the sketch, but like table, read the sketch and then give you immediate feedback. I was like, Oh, okay. Like having, having edits, getting feedback, like straight to my face, like, Oh, that's not scary anymore. And being able to like produce work rapidly. It was a lot of the things that I think, I had picked up in my years of like high school journalism, but had gotten out of the practice of and had gotten really used to kind of creating in a vacuum. And then suddenly being like, Oh, like, okay, I can show up and like, I got work done. It didn't have to be perfect. And other people are going to help me make it better. And so I stopped worrying about perfection and I stopped taking constructive criticism personally (laughs) it's like all right no i just want this to be good work like um, my feelings are no longer involved i just want it to be good and i don't care if like like, i didn't do this as well as i could have like help me to make it as good as it could be yeah i think that the line of demarcation between professional writers and amateur writers are people that can do what you just said which is hear criticism take it and not take it personally and to know that like to craft the thing means you need people to help you carve it up a little bit and figure out mm-hmm. where the thing is. Uh, and my f- early days at Wired, it was like the dot-com era. Like, it's crazy. There were too many jobs and not enough people. And so, you know, I was like 27 or 28 and was one of the older people there. 
and I legendarily had fights with copy editors from across the room about words. Right? Like, shit that today I'm like, oh, God, what an insufferable asshole. Like, don't pick the wrong word, but, like, am I really going to go to the wall over, you know, whether we're going to use an M-dash or not? Because, yes, I would. Yes, I would. And I would scream it across the room, right? And then I did that for a while, and I was like, I don't think that's actually helpful for anybody. <laughs> and, like, maybe I should listen to what they're saying since they are copy editors, and that's literally their job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right? So yeah. when do you decide to do the book? Gosh. Um, Which also is a straight line into everything that you've done. Sure. Right. Well, um, uh, a lot of it goes back to like the launch of Lit Hub. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what year that was. I want to say Lit Hub launched in like 2015. Maybe. Um, and uh, at the time that it was launching, you know, nobody had any, I, I don't know. I don't know that I certainly had a clear picture of like what this literary focused website would be. And now it's, you know, a very um, important part of like the literary internet. Um, but at the time they were starting, um, one of the editors had reached out to me and I think a number of other booksellers around the country about um, connecting with bookstores for features and having people from those bookstores kind of covering um, local literary culture. And so I um, connected with Emily, who's one of the editors there and uh like did a feature on my bookstore, covered the LA Times Festival of Books for them. And um, they, they'd done some features uh, on like, you know, the literary community of your city. And so I wrote about uh, the literary community of Los Angeles. And then they also did a feature um, that was a literary long weekend somewhere and it was more literary tourism, which was great um, because that is part of my academic background. My academic advisor in college, her specialty was um, literary tourism and like specifically, and this was my undergrad advisor, um, like literary tourism texts of the 19th century, which uh, certainly has shaped so much of what I've done yeah, over the years. I feel years. like that couldn't be any more perfect for you. Right? You know, it is It is one of the um, great regrets and sadness of my life that she passed away before uh, any of this work was out. Um, but uh, certainly a huge influence and in, in really... Um, helped me to figure out that that was something I cared a lot about. And I was, you know, I made my mom, uh, like focus into the Algonquin when my mom took me to New York because that's where Dorothy Parker drank. And so I was like, I got to go to these places. I have to like, I have to go to the cathedral of St. John the divine in New York because Madeline Langle was the writer in residence and set multiple books 
there on its grounds. And so I'd been doing literary tourism without a name. And then this opportunity for Lit Hub came up and I was like, yes, I'm going to like, I'm going to talk about bookstores and libraries and locations from books. And I wrote those two pieces. I mean, they, with probably a few months in between and, um, my friend's agent had like liked and reposted, um, no, uh, my publisher, I mean, years before they were my publisher did the same thing. And I started thinking, what if I did a book about this? Cause in, in doing my research and just trying to put together an agenda for like two, three days, of literary tourism in LA, I was like, there's so much more I could do. Um, so I reached out to that agent and said, Hey, um, if I wrote a book proposal, um, about literary Los Angeles, would you be interested in seeing it? And she said, yes. So I scrambled to figure out how to write a nonfiction book proposal. (laughs) Um, there's a lot of Googling, uh, and a lot of generosity from like friends of friends who were published nonfiction writers who uh, let me read proposals of theirs. Um, so I put together a proposal, sent it to her. She said, uh, and, and this is a very truncated timeline here. She said, uh, yeah, this is great. Um, let's set up a meeting so we had the meeting and at the end of it, I was like, so does this mean you're interested? And she said, yeah, we wouldn't have had a meeting if I wasn't. I was like, okay, learning things here. Um, but then I, I spent the next two years um, working on the proposal and just doing so much research. Um, I read dozens and dozens of books that... Um, I hadn't yet read. I mean, I'd, I'd read plenty going into writing this proposal, but then I just spent like two years with, you know, my head down, um, with a lot of my free time, just reading things, going to places. Um, I also started doing, um, a recurring feature for the Los Angeles review of books on literary tourism and, so I was, you know, working on that as well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, two years into the process, um, Colleen, who is the publisher um, at Prospect Park Books, my my publisher, had emailed me in my position as the buyer for one of the bigger bookstores in Los Angeles and said, hey, we're thinking about doing a book on literary Los Angeles. Do you think that's something that would sell? Um, and I immediately forwarded it to my agent and was like, uh, I do think this would sell. That's what we've spent all this time working on. It better sell. Uh, what do we do though? And so, um, Dara, my agent and I and Colleen started talking and, um, I went in for a meeting with her. Um, which by that point I had learned if people will take meetings with you, it's generally a good that sign. What that means yes. <laughs> and so it's so when did yeah. it come out? Um. So, gosh. So the book, the book released on March 
10th. We had a launch event March 11th. And then on March 12th, Los Angeles basically started shutting down. Um, yeah. So it was, it was wild. I mean, even the writing process, um, the book contract was signed at the end of January, 2019. Um, and the book was due at the beginning of June. But you had already been right. I mean, you had written, yeah. you'd written a large chunk of it. Exactly. Yeah. I had, I had, I was so well prepared to be able to write the book in four months. Um, so I'm very glad for that, like, two-year research period, which made the actual execution of the book much faster. Um, but yeah, and so the book came out in March. And you broke the world. And I broke the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's only funny yeah. to writers. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I've had lots of these conversations where people are like, oh, I spent my whole life doing this. And I just talked to a guy the other day. Uh, this is his first book. And the day he had like three events scheduled was the day mm-hmm. the city shut down. <laughs> so he was like going to have like this all day launch party. And I was like, oh, God, that's oh. Oh. I hope you had a big bottle of whiskey for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I go ahead. Well, no, it's just the the day my book came out was the day that they announced the postponement of the L.A. Times Festival of Books. Uh, and I was on I was on a panel for that. Um, and I, I know most of the people that organize uh, the Festival of Books. And so the day of my launch party, um, I got drinks beforehand with a couple of the women who work for the Festival of Books. And another writer friend of mine was in conversation with me and we were all basically like, so everything we've all been working on for months and months has just disappeared. Um, and then, you know, the dominoes just kept falling, uh, over the next few days I heard from everyone else that I had events scheduled with that they wouldn't be happening. And, you know, it, I mean, they were making that call before they had to, and it was, it's, it's the right call like I'm you know so it feels weird to be like well I'm personally sad (laughs) that all my fun times don't get to happen but also I really want as few people as possible to be affected with everything else that's going on so like let's all do our part right it's, Let's you know, Whitman later. said, like, we are large and contain multitudes, right? So, like, yeah. you can both be super pissed, but also, like, that's the right thing to do. <laughs> exactly. And even my dog is agreeing. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you can hear him, but he is he is definitely giving the yes to the pandemic. <laughs> he now thinks, my dog now thinks, because I am here all the time, that I have just decided to stay home to handle his every whim at the moment that he has them. That is that is how Max is taking the pandemic. It's like, oh, great, human is here to meet my needs. Uh, well, hey, it was great talking to you. Um, and it is, I'm, she accidentally sent me the book, so I'm actually looking forward to putting that PDF in the reader and, <laughs> and reading it because I love Los Angeles. I haven't been there in a long time, but I used to come down there all the time when I worked in San Francisco. So now I have, 
Because I take the literary tour thing when I go to New York. Like, I always go to the White Horse Tavern where Dylan Thomas... Like, uh, I have my places where I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to go here, <laughs> right? Yeah. So next time I come to Los Angeles, now I will have some places that I can go to there. Perfect. Uh, good luck with the rest of this. <laughs> Thank you. The good news is people now have time to read, and I suspect when this is all over you guys are going to be able to put on a kick-ass launch party that will take people to all these places. Uh, that would be Amazing. so much fun. Right? I would yeah. get on a plane and come out and do that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you guys take care of yourself and have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Right. Thanks for having me. Yep. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. All right. There you have it. It's really interesting. I love people's stories, and I love finding out the ways in which, even though it's really difficult to make a living as a writer, the ways in which people go about doing that. You can help Katie by going to Bookshop from thebrandking.com and buying Read Me Los Angeles, exploring LA's book culture. You can also buy that anywhere they sell books. I hope that you are keeping safe while you are doing that. I hope you will go and leave a review about the podcast if you liked it. And sign up for the newsletter. You can get a free ebook that I've written at thebradking.com. We have a lot of great guests coming up. I just got off the phone with a couple of them today. It's weird. Like, all of this is out of order for me. You are getting them in the order that I deliver them. But the thing that has kept me sane through this is talking to writers and interacting with you and being out on Twitter with authors and helping promote their work and stuff. So I hope that it is also getting you through these times. Wash your hands, stay inside, take care of each other. And until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.